For many of us, it has been hard to find joy in the midst of COVID-19. But when I look back at my life timeline during the pandemic, I have discovered that joy comes in the hardest of times. It all started when I tried to sell my condo in March of 2020 so that I could buy a place in Victoria. That's when COVID-19 started and I couldn't sell my place. I then decided to take it off the market and sell it next year, hoping that COVID-19 would be long gone. I ended up having the worst renter ever and ended up evicting her in December and had the hardest time selling my condo again. Even the people below my condo sabotaged the first buyer and harassed them into not buying the place. There were so many other problems, but it finally sold in January. To top off my crazy COVID-19 pandemic years, I was admitted to the hospital five times. The most recent one was this last August for internal bleeding. I had three colonoscopies, about eight endoscopies, and many CAT scans and blood transfusions, and my body went into shock twice. Through all these trials and tribulations, sometimes joy comes in a gift that's unexpected. Sometimes I felt unworthy to receive it. But Jesus redeemed my life situation. He became the hero of my life story. The condo I sold in January had a fire, and Jesus knew, even though I had to go through a lot of hardship, that I needed to sell it as soon as possible. And while in the hospital, Jesus gave me an opportunity to share the gospel and pray for my roommates during my hospital stay. And due to this crazy market this past year. I ended up buying a place near Langford Lake and I needed to get another job to pay for my mortgage because my main job couldn't pay for everything. But Jesus blessed me with this opportunity to build relationships with non-Christians and share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. You know what, guys? Jesus is the only thing that can give us joy in the darkest of times. Joy is eternal and selfless and sacrificial and it's a spiritual connection with God and it's purely good. We need joy in our lives just as we need the Father and Jesus in our lives. Jesus is the only thing that can give us joy in our toughest and happiest times of life. So remember, the joy of the Lord is our strength, just as Nehemiah 8.10 says. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. Well, good morning, everybody. How's it going out there? Good morning. It is a slushy, sucky day. Sucky day. Is it sucky day? Oh man, I I hate snow, guys. I hate it with a lot of fibers of my being. Oh man, sorry. It's it's terrible. It's terrible. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Right. Y'all thought the end times was like COVID and stuff like that? No, no, it's snow in Victoria. That's the end times as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, big welcome to you if you're in the room, if you're in one of the theaters down the hall, if you're joining us online. Uh, my name's Chris, one of the leaders here. I saw, met a few new people, saw lots of new faces out there. Uh, yeah, great to have you with us. Um, yeah, 
my, my prayer, our prayer as a church is that uh, in our being together, that the Holy Spirit would speak, that Jesus would be revealed, that we would be uh, both encouraged and uh, challenged uh, to live lives that are more like him. Uh, we're in the middle of an Advent series uh, called Unlikely Grace. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been leading up to Christmas is just kind of looking at the genealogy of, of Jesus as it is found in Matthew chapter 1. And there's these five women, these five descript women who are, are discussed in there and just kind of looking at their, uh, who they are, their stories, their characteristics. Um, and, and it's kind of funny as you get closer and closer to Christmas, like it, it's kind of a weird time, isn't it? Like Christmas season, like weird things happen in our culture. Like I'll just give you one example. Uh, I'm in Starbucks uh, on Sunday morning. Most Sundays, preparing to teach when, I, when I'm speaking. And <clears throat> Starbucks is, I would say, not necessarily known as one of those uh, corporations that would be uh, super friendly to Christian worldview and values, right? Like they've, they've kind of come out on some particular social issues that don't necessarily align with, with the teachings of the scripture. I'm in there this morning and I'm working on my, my sermon, preparing my heart and my mind to preach. And there, there's songs on the, you know, on the internal radio. It's not a radio. Radio? Do we still have radios? Whatever. There's music playing. Whatever that is. However they do that. Um, and it's about Jesus. I'm like, that's weird. Like, it would be like in the middle of March, you know, Starbucks deciding to play like worship music or something. It's just so uncharacteristic. Uh, you know, we, we do weird things. We, we do weird things. We, we, we put plastic trees in our living room, right? Like that's weird. We hang lights, uh, you know, from our, from our, our houses. That's weird. We wouldn't do anything uh, like this normally. This would, it would be, un, it'd be unusual if in, uh, you know, in April you, you put a plastic tree in your living room and put lights on it and, you know, like in, like, it'd just be a weird thing to do. And, and I don't know if you have this struggle. I have this struggle for sure as a parent, at least uh, in this season. It's like, what are we doing? Like, what's going on? Like, why are we doing all this? What's, the, what's actually the point of Christmas? You know, and I get all these, I start, to, my, my kids get super squirrely because I'm like, that's it. No more presents, no more trees, like silent prayer, fasting. That's what we're going to do. It's all about Jesus, you know? And they're like, no, why did we have to be born into this family? Why, why can't we just have normal dad? Why do we have to have pastor dad? It's like, oh, this sucks. But that's kind of like a metaphor for life, isn't it? Like we, we kind of just go through the motions and we're not really sure why we're doing what we're doing. Like why does any of it matter? Like what's the point of what we're actually doing? Like so often, you know, we just kind of live our lives and then all of a sudden we're 42 got no hair, we're sending all our kids to college, and it's like, what just happened? That was me, by the way. I'm sorry, I'm just working out my angst here in my sermon, but, but how did we get here? How did I get here? What, what, what is the last 42, like, what is it all about? And just think about your week. Think about your, your week this week, right? Like, what did the average day look like? I got up, Hopefully brushed my teeth, hopefully took a shower, got dressed, dropped my kids off at school, went to work, answered some emails, wrote a couple reports, came home, made dinner, did some homework with the kids, put them to bed, passed out on the couch watching Seinfeld on Netflix, and then I got up and I did it all again. And you're like, what's going on? It's like Groundhog Day, right? Like every day you wake up and it's the same thing. And, and I don't know if you, maybe you don't, and that, that's actually like a problem if you don't ask this. But, but, but shouldn't we ask like, what's this all about? 
What, what is my life about? Like I like, and I think the problem can be sometimes we lose sight of the forest because there's too many trees in the way. You know what I'm saying? Like life is so simple. It's so plain. It's so ordinary. Sometimes there's great highs. Sometimes there's great lows. But, but over the spectrum of the, the length of time we're going to live, it's kind of just like this. And it's like, what are we doing? What's the point? What is the point of my life? This is exactly what we're going to look at today. As we go into Matthew's genealogy, there's these five women, as I already said. And the the woman that we're going to look at today is is named Ruth. And there's an entire book in the Old Testament. You can turn there in your Bible if you have your Bible. If not, there's a Bible on the table over there which you can take or go to your phone uh, and go to the book of Ruth. But her story is one that is very plain. It is very ordinary. It is not fantastical. I mean, sometimes I think, tell me if this makes sense to you, but sometimes you read Bible stories and you're like, this seems so far from uh, anything I could ever experience in my own life, right? Like we have talking uh, snakes or we have burning bushes or we have parting seas. We have divine impartations. We have angels that show up. We have all these like fantastical things, right? Virgin births, all the stuff that we celebrate around the Christmas season, and you're like, yeah, like, I get it. Like, it's, you know, I believe it, but I don't really get it. Like, it doesn't really grab me because it's not consistent with the life I experience, which is, like, brush your teeth, take your kids to stool, go to sleep, and do it all again. Well, that's the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is a, it's a picture of how God works in the, the mundane, in the plain, in the ordinary, in the stuff of life, but he doesn't just work in that he does, he does amazing things. And, and here's my big idea for today, okay? I'm going I'm to quote uh, John Piper. I read this on his Twitter feed like a number of years ago, uh, and I'm going to quote him, and I'm probably going to say this like 15 times today because if, you, if there's anything you're going to get, I want you to get this. This is, this is the line, okay? God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now. I have no idea what's, what's up on the screen. That's not the right quote. Ignore that quote. God, well, wait, maybe it is the right quote. Oh, okay, that's not the quote that's on the screen in front of me, but all right. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may only be aware of three. God is doing 10,000, always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may only be aware of three of them. How many times have you woken up and you've asked the question, and maybe you don't even ask the question, which in and of itself could be part of the problem, but like, what is God actually doing in my life right now? Well, the reality is he's doing 10,000 things, and you may only be aware of three. So if you have your Bibles, go to Ruth. That's where we're going to pick up. And uh, let, me, let me just kind of set the context up here, because uh, what I'm going to try and do, ha, 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 is preach the entire book. Uh, in one sitting, okay. We've gone through we've gone through the book of Ruth uh, as a church a number of years ago. I'm sure you can find all this online. But what I want to do is just kind of hit three or four. We'll see how much time I have. Three or four high points in Ruth's story, and hopefully by God's grace, be able to encourage us with that. But let me just kind of set the context. If you have your Bibles open and you're looking at Ruth chapter one on my in my Bible at least, if I go one page to the left is the book of Judges, and the book of Ruth is wedged between the book of Judges and the book of First Samuel. Now, if you know anything about the book of Judges, it's like the darkest time in the history of the nation of Israel. In fact, this is how uh, the book of Judges ends in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. 
Uh, and then Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 starts with, in the days the judges ruled. Okay, so this is the epoch of time in which this story is unfolding. So it's a very dark time. In fact, one of the meta-narratives of, uh, of the story of Ruth is that God is doing some of his finest work on some of our darkest days, which is good news, right? I mean, if you're having a dark day today, like that's really, really good news. But that's one of the meta-themes of of the book of Ruth. And then at the end of the book of Ruth, we go into 1 Samuel, and in 1 Samuel, we see that the prophet Samuel comes and he inaugurates the, the office of kingship over the people of God. And so wedged in between this like really significant time in the history of Israel is this, this really plain story. And, and again, I, I don't want to over-spiritualize some of these things, but, but just think about where we are right now in our history, right? This is a pretty fantastical time to be alive. I mean, it doesn't feel fantastical, but it's like they're going to write books about the time that we're all alive right now, right? Like, this is pretty crazy. Like, we've got, like, floods. We've got toilet paper shortages. We've got, we, I mean, COVID-19, COVID whatever, variant number, whatever letter we're on. Like, it's pretty wild. And it might actually seem like God's not here, it might actually seem like he's not at work. It might actually seem like he took a nap, like he fell asleep in 2019 right there at the end. And we're kind of waiting for him to wake up. It's almost 2022, time to wake up, right? But he's working. That's what the story of Ruth is going to show us. He's working. He's always doing 10,000 things in your life. And he might not actually be aware of any of them, let alone three. So the story of Ruth kind of starts off, and let me just kind of paint the picture for us. There's this woman named Naomi, her and her husband, uh, Elimelech. They, they leave Jerusalem because there's a famine. And they have two sons, and, and Elimelech and, and Naomi, they leave uh, Jerusalem, or they leave Bethlehem, actually, and they go into Moab, which is like a, a part of the, at that time, like the, the Moabites were people who didn't love and worship Jesus. Okay, so these are, these are like functionally an enemy territory. Uh, and they live there for a number of years, and their two sons end up, uh, marrying these two gals, one named Ruth, one named Orpah. And then a famine hits uh, the Moabites. And what ends up happening is Elimelech and the two sons die. And so now we're left with Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. Okay, these two daughter-in-laws who are Moabites. And, and Naomi's unsure of what to do. I mean, obviously, this is, this is a hard season for her. But what ends up happening is, is the, the famine that's back in the nation of Israel is starting to lift. God's starting to bless his people again. And Naomi is deciding that it's time for her to go back. And I want to pick up the story, Ruth chapter 1, picking up in verse 8. Here's what the author records. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back each of you to your mother's house. And may the Lord show kindness as you have shown kindness to your, to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. So Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, you stay here. Okay, you stay among your people. You're going to find new husbands. It's going to go well for you. Don't come back with me. If you come back with me, it's not going to go well. And the daughter-in-laws are like, no, 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 we want to go with you. Verse 11, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried to them? No, my daughters. Now listen to this, okay? Put your pretty little eyes down here on these verses. It is more bitter for me than for you. Why? Why, Naomi? Why is it more bitter for you than for your daughter-in-laws? 
because the Lord's hand has turned against me. It is more bitter for me than it is for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, what the author is doing here, and it's really important that we understand this, is he's kind of doing a word play. Okay, so the name Naomi actually means sweet or pleasant. That's what her name means. But here, Naomi says, like, I'm not sweet or pleasant. I'm actually bitter. Okay, now notice, this is really important, why she calls herself bitter. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, if you go down to verse 20, I'm not sure if these will be on the screen or not, but listen, because she says it again. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi, and, and to be fair, right, she's looking at her circumstances, and her response is, God is not in this. In fact, I would, I would contend she goes a step further than that to say, not only is God not in this, but God is actually against me. Now, now I want to be, I want to be both careful and clear here, okay? Careful in the sense that I, I in no way want to trivialize or minimize the pain in which Naomi is going through. I mean, I have done this thought experiment before. I don't know if you do stuff like this. This might just be the darkness of who I am. But I sit at times and I think, what would it take for me to give up on my faith in Jesus? Like, what would it take? How, how, how much would I have to go through before I'm willing to say, Jesus, I'm, I'm not on your team anymore? Like, I've played the game. My, my family goes on a road trip. They drive off the side of a cliff. They're all gone. Sorry, babe. <laughs> Sorry. She's over there like, what? This is crazy. And they're all gone. Would I walk? Would I show up, you know, the elders and say, okay, I quit. I'm out. No longer on Team Jesus. I'm just doing my own thing now. Be hard. I mean, I mean that's the level of pain that Naomi's going through, right? She, she's fe like, just feel what she's feeling. She's lost her husband and her two sons. For, for some of you, it might not actually be that hard to, to imagine that pain, right? You, you've lost a family member. You've lost a spouse. You've lost a child. You, you've lost somebody close. And you, you understand. You fully grasp exactly what Naomi is feeling. But I want you to notice something, okay? On one hand, I want, I want to be super sensitive here to her plight, to her situation, to her circumstances. I'm in, I'm in no way trying to not be, be mindful of what she's going through. But I want you to notice something. This is, the, this is the clear part, right? That's the careful part. Here's the clear part. Naomi had an idea in her mind of what it looked like to be blessed by God. And when he didn't do what she thought he was supposed to do, look at what she does. She blames him. Her bitterness is causing her to actually become blind to the work of God. She could see no way in which God was actually for her. She assumed that God must be against her. So you go back to the John Piper quote, God's always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might only be aware of three. She's not aware of any. In fact, not only is she not aware of any, she actually thinks God is doing 10,000 evil things in her life. And, and the warning for us, the caution here for us 
is that we have these ideas in our mind of how God is supposed to work in our lives, these ideas in our mind of how God is supposed to bless us, and be very careful with those friends. Be very careful. Because if he doesn't do it, what is your, what is your response going to be? You see, my, my argument here is that Naomi couldn't see what God was doing in her life, and he was doing a lot. Right? I mean, we don't have time to go through all this, but, but Ruth ends up coming back with Naomi. He, Selena read that Ruth clung to her. God blessed his people, which allowed her to go back. You know, spoiler alert here, but, but Ruth and Naomi end up getting brought into Boaz's family and being blessed. Not only that, Naomi's lineage and, and Ruth's lineage through Boaz ends up being the lineage through which, which Jesus is born. None of which would have happened had she not gone through the hardship in which she was enduring in this present moment, but she could not see any of it because her preconceived notions and ideas of how God is supposed to work in her life, they were shattered. And so because of it, she was blind. And so let me just ask the question because I think it begs to be asked and I think it's an important question for you to ask. And if you don't do those weird mental mind games, those dark, weird mental mind games that I do, you need to start doing some of them. But what is it that if God took it away from you, you would not be able to call him good any longer? Let me ask you another question, maybe even more pressing, more personal, more direct. Is your love of Jesus your worship of him, your ability to speak with your mouth, God, you are good, does it hinge on him blessing you in the way that you see fit? In other words, do you worship Jesus or do you worship what Jesus can do for you? Friends, God's providentially moving in Naomi's story. We'll see how it unfolds at the end, hopefully. He's doing 10,000 good things in her story, but she's blind to them. She's blind to them because her own idolatry is getting in the way of her ability to see how God is actually at work in her life. And it is possible that right now you're in a hard season, a dark season, a lonely season, and it feels like God is not there. Friends, look at me in the eyes. Look at me. He's there. He's working. He's moving. Right now, he's doing 10,000 things, and you can't see them. But he's there. He's there. All right, next part of the story, if you have your Bibles, go Ruth chapter 2. We're going to just pick up in verse 1. We're going to get introduced a little bit more here uh, to Ruth. Here's, here's where we're going to go. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read a bunch of verses. I'll just stop and explain. So now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay, this is a foreshadow. By the way, I just love this name. Right, if we're going to have any COVID boy babies, name them Boaz. Like, it's just super fun to say, right? Boaz. 
Just love it, love it. Like, that guy's going to be a dude. If you have a Boaz, it's going to be a dude. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Okay, so Naomi's gone back. Uh, sorry, Ruth has gone back with Naomi, and now she's like, okay, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do, Naomi. Like, we're, like, they're in a bad place, right? Like, two gals, one who's a Moabite, one who's a widow. They have no way to work. They have no, like, in this patriarchal society, the, the men would often protect and care for the women. They don't have a lot of family, or at least at this point, no family that they're aware of. And so Ruth, just in the kindness and the goodness of her heart, she's like, I'm going to get up and go to work. I'm going to make some things happen here. Okay, so, so this is just like an ordinary day. Ruth's like, I got, we got to find food. I'm going to go find some food, right? Don't read the Bible and start to make it something that it's not, right? Like you read this, like, like this fantastical story of this woman who's like glowing and she's skipping down the road. No, no, no. She's hungry. They're poor. She's destitute. This is the equivalent of dumpster diving. Okay, she's like, we got to eat. I'm going to go find some food. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. So she found a farmer's field, and what they would do is they would go and obviously harvest all their crops. They would leave a little bit left over. Sometimes it was like stuff they didn't need. Sometimes it was stuff they missed. Sometimes if you found a good farmer like Boaz is, it was actually stuff that they were instructed to leave behind for people like Ruth and Naomi. As it turned out, okay, coincidentally, I underline that. We'll come back to that. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Okay, I'll stop doing that, but it's super fun. Greeted the harvesters. We might just preach through Ruth again so I can keep doing that. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Oh, I wanted to do it so bad. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does this woman, young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she's a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. So they know the story. They're familiar with the story. And so these guys are telling Boaz the story. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. In other words, let me dumpster dive over here. She came into the field and she's remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. In other words, she's been working her butt off trying to get some food. Verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Why? Because it's not safe. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the other women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Boaz is a good dude, right? And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So we get introduced to this character, Boaz. He's a really really, really good dude. As it turned out, right? Coincidentally, Ruth, going to look for food, she just randomly, happenstancely ends up at Boaz's field. Giant coincidence, right? God's always doing 10,000 things in your life. You might only be aware of three. And so she gets in there, and Boaz, being the good, godly man that he is, he's like, I'm going to make sure you and Naomi are taken care of. I've heard your story. I hear your plight, and I want to make sure you're taken care of. So here, here's how I want you to operate in my field. I'll make sure the guys don't touch you. Work with the women I work with. You will be well cared for. But this is what I want to hone in on. Look at verse 10. So this is, this is Ruth's response to Boaz. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, why have I found such favor? The Hebrew word is hesed. It's the same word we use to describe grace. Why have I found such grace or so, such favor in your eyes that you would notice me a foreigner? 
Now look at Boaz's response. He says two things. I want to touch on the first one briefly and really dig into the second one. Verse 11, here's the first thing. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people who did not, you did not know before. Now I want to be clear about something here, okay? So here's what Boaz is saying. I, I looked at what you've done and I want to make sure you're blessed. Now, here, here's what I'm not saying. Okay, what I'm not saying is that if you work really hard, God will figure out your stuff for you. That could be one way that you misunderstand what's happening here. Right? This is not prosperity gospel. For every mile of road, there's two miles of ditches. If one ditch in the road is the prosperity gospel, the other ditch in the road is that grace is opposed to effort. No, 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 it's not. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. In fact, I would contend that if you truly understand the grace of God, it motivates you in a unique way to work for the goodness and grace and righteousness of God. And that's what we see here in the life of Ruth. We'll talk about this in just a second, but she actually has a come to Jesus moment, a conversion moment where she understands the covenantal love of God. And my contention is this, the reason that she was so motivated to serve Naomi and to work as hard as she was, partially because she was desperate, but partially because she understood the goodness of God. Friends, you need to understand the goodness of God is not opposed to you working really hard for his honor and glory. I think sometimes there can be a sloppiness or a laziness to our understanding of the gospel where you think, man, I, I prayed a prayer or I did a thing and, and now I'm saved by grace, right? Not by works. So I get to just sit on the couch, eat potato chips and take naps until I go to heaven. No. It's the grace of God that motivates us to want to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. The apostle Paul uses all kinds of metaphors. He says, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. He talks about the Christian life like a, being a farmer, being a soldier, being an athlete where we work hard, run after the prize because we've experienced, we've tasted and seen the goodness of God and it motivates us to want others to experience what we've experienced. And so we press and we pursue and we work not for grace but from grace because we've experienced all the goodness that Jesus has for us. We want to work for him. I don't love and serve my wife so she'll love me most of the time. I love and serve my wife because I love her. I don't want to make her love me by serving her. I, I serve her because I know that she loves me and I love her. It's the difference between covenant and contract or covenant and duty. So that's the first thing. That was supposed to be a small point. It became a bigger point. Here's the second thing. This is really want to really want to hone in on. Here's the second thing that Boaz says to Ruth, verse, uh, verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Uh, so here Boaz uses this like illustration of of. Uh, like an eagle taking refuge, a small, what's a, what's a baby eagle? An eaglet? Is that a thing? An eaglet? Let's go with it. Eaglet, okay? An eaglet, <laughs> is that a word? I don't know. Tell me after. Don't tell me now, because I'm having fun with this. An eaglet taking refuge under the wing of a mama eagle. 
protection, nurturing, care. And here's what Boaz is saying. You're being blessed, not by me, but by God, because you have made the decision to take refuge under the wing of God. Under God is where your refuge is coming from. Now, go back to Ruth chapter 1 really quickly, verses 15, or verses 16 and 17 here. Back to the story where, where Ruth and Naomi are debating whether Ruth's going to come back. And listen to what Ruth says. Uh, she says this, but Ruth replied, don't urge me. She's speaking to Naomi. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from, from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your, listen to this. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is actually... This is actually Ruth's conversion. This is her moment of decision. Right here in this moment, Ruth was standing at the valley of decision. She's looking at Moab. She sees her family there. She sees every, like her life, her parents, a, a way to live and be paid and, and just exist that is going to be okay. And then she sees Naomi going back to the people of God, and she realizes that's going to be a much harder life for her. But she had spent many years in this family that loved and worshipped the God of Israel. She spent many years learning about the covenant promises of God. And in this moment, in this Ruth chapter 1 moment, she makes the decision to walk away from all of it. Everything she knows, safety, comfort, security, to walk into the unknown and be with Naomi. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells, he tells this parable uh, of what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a short parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is buried in a field. One day a man goes to work. He's digging in the field and he discovers the treasure. And he buries it. And he goes home. And he sells all his property and possessions. Everything he owns. Why? Because he wants to buy the field where the treasure is. Maybe the real estate market there is like the real estate market here. I have no idea. But he has to sell everything. It's a metaphor. Jesus is saying in order to get this treasure in the field, this man had to, get, he had to walk away from everything he knew. All the security, all the safety, all the comfort, everything in order to get what? The treasure. Yes, he loses all of his stuff, Yes, he loses all of his security. Yes, he loses his life, his family home, the place he was raising his kids. But he gets the treasure. Whatever that treasure is, it must have been really valuable for him to do that, hey? And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. When you realize how good I am, he's the treasure. When you realize how good I am, you'll walk away from everything. What is Boaz? What is Boaz? What is he speaking words of grace to Ruth about? Her willingness to walk away from everything she knows. To take refuge. To take refuge under the wing of God. 
Two things I want to point out about what Boaz is saying here, and I think they're both really important. The first one is this. Don't miss this, friends. Ruth is a Moabite. She is racially, ethnically, religiously an outsider. In fact, that's one of the reasons she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. Because what Jesus is wanting to communicate by having her in his genealogy is that the gospel is for everybody and anybody. In other words, all are invited to come. And listen, all we have to do, all we have to do is receive his invitation. So for us who are listening to this, if you're hearing this, no matter where you are, when you are, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. Jesus invites every single person to come to him. And all you have to do is reach out and take it. All Ruth had to do was walk away. Everyone's invited. And then the second thing is this, and this might be more relevant for some of you. I want you to notice the difference between Naomi and Ruth. Naomi goes through hardship, and what is her response? She runs away from God. Ruth goes through hardship, and what is her response? She runs after him. She runs towards him. Some of us are going through hard things. There is no doubt about it. And the question is, will we run away from God or will we run towards him? Will we blame him or will we worship him? What Boaz is saying to Ruth is that you have taken refuge under the wing of God. And because of it, you will be blessed. What about us, friends? Will we worship in our pain? Will we worship in our hurt? Will we worship in our suffering? Will we turn and run to him for refuge? Next thing, Ruth chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 her mother-in-law, so this is after Ruth comes home. She tells Naomi, hey, I met Boaz. And here's what her mother-in-law asked her. Well, she says, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And then listen to this. This is what Naomi says. The Lord bless him. So all of a sudden, okay, so Naomi's circumstances changed. Notice her disposition. Uh, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to us. So now we start to see a shift in Naomi's story. Uh, he's not sh stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Okay, so uh, some of older NIV translations would, would translate this kinsman redeemer. Uh, and the kinsman redeemer is this provision that was in the Old Testament law. And it's really a foreshadow of Christ. It's this idea that uh, and, and Andrew talked about this a few weeks ago with Tamar. It's, but it's this idea that there was a person in your family who was destitute. They were, they were on their own, like, like Naomi and Ruth. That if you were a part of their family, you, could, you would have a provision where you could go in and actually redeem them, save them, bring them into your family, move them from, from danger, from imminent death, from hardship, and bring them into your family. And they would actually be redeemed. They'd become a part of your family. 
but there's an inherent risk in doing this, right? Because now all of a sudden you're starting to spread your wealth out, uh, your property, your possessions are now going to be shared amongst more people, more children, bigger family. And so the rest of chapter three is actually, it's a beautiful story and I encourage you to go read it, but, but Naomi and Ruth hatch this plot to, to kind of, not trick, but to kind of compel Boaz to want to actually redeem them, and he does. But if you go uh, to chapter four, they discover that there's actually a closer relative than Boaz who can redeem them. And look at what it says in chapter four, verse six. At this, the guardian redeemer, this is actually the one that they discover is a closer relative. We're not actually told his name. He said, then I cannot redeem them because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem them yourself, I cannot do it. So that's what this man is saying to Boaz because Boaz comes to the elders of the village and he says, I want to redeem them. And they do their homework. They realize there's a guy who's closer who can redeem them. So they go to this guy and the guy's like, nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because the cost is too great. There's too much of a risk. Now think about this for a second, okay? Again, he... You know, if he had had a Bible and had read it, he would know how the story's going to go, but he didn't know how the story's going to But we know how the story ends, right? This is the story that's going to lead to the lineage of David and ultimately the lineage of Jesus. This guy's faced with a moment of decision. He decides to take the easy way out, and what's the result? Instead of getting to be in the lineage of David and the lineage of Jesus, he gets a footnote in the book of Ruth, and we don't even know his name. There's a sermon in there somewhere. I'll preach it some other time. Verse 7. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. That sounds a lot cheaper than notarizing something, hey? Verse 8. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. That's her sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. What do we see here? We see Boaz looking at the situation, looking at the circumstances, realizing there's great cost to him personally, and he's willing to endure the risk. He's willing to risk it all in order to redeem Ruth and redeem Naomi. Friends, this is a picture of Jesus. We are told by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, who being the very nature of, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptying himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus walks away from everything, everything that he's entitled to. Why? To redeem us. When we talk about the Christmas story, when we talk about Advent, and we talk about baby Jesus, what are we talking about? We are talking about the God of the universe taking on flesh. We were sitting around the dinner table last night doing some Advent readings with our children, and and Kelly asked the question, what stands out to you? 
And the answer was, my goodness, I can't believe that God would come in the flesh. I can't believe that God would go to this no-name town, Bethlehem, which ironically enough is where this story is taking place. I can't believe that God would come as a baby needing to have his diaper changed, learning to walk and talk. Emily asked, did he cry? Did Jesus? Yes, he cried. He had need. He became dependent. He walked away from all of it to redeem us. It's beautiful. It's beautiful that God in his grace would do that for us that we might be called sons and daughters. Amen? I'm gonna invite the band to come up. We need to close. I got one more thing I wanna say because I think it's really important. Here's how the story ends. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth, has given him birth. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, right? This is the full transition of her story. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. The rest of the genealogy and this chapter leads into David's genealogy, but David was the greatest king in the history of Israel, came through the line of Boaz and Ruth. Not only is he the greatest king in the history of Israel, he's also, he's also the, 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 most, um, the, the, the most significant picture we have in the Old Testament of Christ. Not only is he the most significant picture we have in the Old Testament of Christ, but he's also the one whom the people of God in the Old Testament were promised that the Messiah would come through his line. So so think about this with me for a second. If God is always doing 10,000 things in our lives, and we may only be aware of three, maybe even none, think about this. When Ruth got up on that day and went to work, they were hungry, they needed some food, she went to work. Do you think she was thinking to herself, today's the day? This is the most important day in the history of the nation of Israel. He is going to redeem his people through my decision to go to work. Of course not. She was probably thinking, man, I wish I stayed in Moab. Because then I wouldn't have to go dumpster diving today. And when she met Boaz in the field that day, do you think she was thinking to herself, oh yeah, not only is this guy really good looking and happens to be a really nice dude, but it's through our our marriage and our relationship that God is going to bring salvation to the earth. Probably not. Probably not. Just gonna go out on a limb. She, She probably thought, man, I hope he's single because I'm homeless. And friends, yet, yet, it was through these ordinary circumstances that God 
brought about the birth of Christ. If God is always doing 10,000 things in our lives and we might only be aware of three, is it possible that God is always doing 10,000 things through our lives and we might only be aware of three? That tomorrow, it's Monday. Monday is the worst day of the week unless you're a Christian. Because tomorrow you get to go to work. It's my day off. But you get to go to work. You get to talk to people. You get to interact with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates. And tomorrow, God might do one of those 10,000 things through you. Might not bring about the birth of Jesus, but it might bring a somebody into the kingdom of heaven, amen? In fact, my, my guess is you're here listening to this sermon because somebody else got up on a Monday morning and thought today matters. God could use today for his glory. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. He's always doing 10,000 things through your life and you might only be aware of three. If you have your communion elements, take them out. Let me just ask a question. This is rhetorical, but answer it in your heart. What is the greatest picture of God's sovereign divine hand of providence? the cross I mean imagine thinking on the day that Jesus hung on the cross imagine sitting there thinking that this is the greatest day of history you wouldn't think that would you you would think this is the day that God has failed because he's dead but yet it was through the cross when it looked like God had failed, that he brings about the resurrection and he brings about yours and mine, our redemption. It was in that moment that God wasn't just doing 10,000 things, but he was doing an infinite number of things and we weren't aware of any of them. And so Jesus, we thank you we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that when we can't see, you can see that you are at work even when we don't feel it, even when we don't believe it, even when we're blind to it, you are at work. Lord, forgive us for our complicity and our complacency and open our eyes to see and believe that even when you're not working, we can't see you working, rather, you are indeed working. Lord Jesus, as we take this wafer and we, as we drink this cup, may we be reminded that you have redeemed us and every moment is now brought under that redemption. I pray that, that we would, our eyes, our hearts, our minds would be just awakened to that. In Jesus' name, and all God's children said,